0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Bramowitz
1: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, what a year it's been for equity investors, all three major U.S. indices, all up north of 20%. Fantastic performance. What is driving this? In fact, even more risk, uh, people seem to be more willing to take on more risk just over the last several weeks. To get a sense of what is driving this, we welcome our next guest, Jeff Yu, UBS Wealth Manager. He's head of the UK Investment Office. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Give us your sense of kind of what is driving this embracing of risk. We've seen really just over the last four or five weeks that's taken this market even a leg higher.
2: Well, I think two things. Firstly, you know, context is quite important. I think as we approach year end, you know, people are going to, uh, uh, right up until, um, I'd say, Christmas Eve, people are going to see quite strong divergences between their year-on-year numbers versus their year-to-date numbers, right? And, uh, you know, that does tell you we um, started the year on a relatively risk-off fitting, um, positioning was soft. And then things um, just, gonna you know, turn out, you know, not quite as bad as expected, um, mm. helped by doses of monetary policy, of course, uh, while the trade issue um, continued to linger through out. Uh, there are some signs, uh, well, you know, more than some signs, um, that this might just uh, uh, get to a point where we don't have to worry as much about um, further escalation from here. So I think you know, that is, um, uh, plus a combination of you know, okay numbers, you know, both on the macro and micro level, have um, just kept people in risk.
1: Yeah. How, how much can you focus on what's going on around the rest mm. of the world, given everything that's going on uh, right where you are uh, with the election coming up in less than a month?
2: Right, so um, you know that we um heard the Prime minister you know speak today um, in front of businesses um and uh, you know clearly uh, uh, there are people on the ground um who um, have been uh, i would say burdened you know by the uncertainty from brexit over the last um, you know, three years or so they would like to see some clarity you know up ahead uh, so of course you know all uh, parties are throwing out you know, their um, uh, you know, campaign and policies and right now I think most uh, companies and individuals will take it with a grain of salt and the, again the hope is that cloud of uncertainty from Brexit and the like will be lifted but then of course and for an open economy like the UK the global environment matters just as much um, so with an eye on the elections here but also hoping that the international economy picks up as well not least helped by, uh, by um, you know, any upcoming uh, phase one trade deal.
1: I'm struggling to sort of put into perspective mm-hmm. the plan uh, proposed by the liberals uh, by by labor, the idea for Mm -hmm. a big fiscal spending plan that is Mm. being viewed by at least sterling as a negative, uh, but potentially uh, is being viewed as a way to jumpstart the economy as what do you think of it?
2: Well, there are two sides to this. You know, firstly, um, I would acknowledge it's very hard to, you know, sell a currency, an index or an economy into a fiscal stimulus, right? Um, so those who are positioned negatively towards the end of 2017 will have, um, strong memories, of that. so, that could be a tailwind, you know, for the UK economy. But on the other hand, it's some of the other issues in which, um, you could be, um, you know, considered, uh, you know, quite, um, novel, right? You know, such as, you know, share ownership plans, you know, such as the nationalization of certain sectors those things of which you know, have been branded around and uh, which over the medium to longer term on a structural basis it may be interpreted as um, less um, positive. So I think that put together is um, taking a bit um, of a gloss off in any potential uh, fiscal stimulus. Um, but again I think in general heading into an election right now people will take any promises with a grain of salt but both parties do have expansionary policies on the spending side. That has to be clear and I think you know, that, uh, there's a hope that could jumpstart the economy on top of some sort of uh, finalization with um, the relationship with Europe.
0: Jeff, one of the uh, data points that we've received recently is that maybe we're getting some stabilization in some of the key European economies. We kind of saw some data in October that was, you know, not worse, kind of less bad. Is that the beginning of a trend, do you think, or not?
2: We are not ready to, um, you know, jump on that yet, right? So, um, you know, two things there, firstly, it's stabilization on an absolute but also relative basis as well. So if you look at most expectations and well, most surprise indices, I think expectations have been very, very weak, you know, throughout the last few quarters or so in Europe, you know, as a result, it becomes, you know, less hard to, you know, surprise, um, you know, to the upside, or at least it becomes harder to surprise to the downside, right, when expectations and positioning are so low. Secondly, you know, there is a clear difference between no more downside versus upside, right? So there again, we need to see a fiscal pick, uh, we need to see a demand pickup. And given our China growth forecast, at, you know, 5, 5.7% or so, um, which um, uh, is very important for the Eurozone economy, and our U.S. growth forecast is not that strong either. So I think put together with a cyclical, with an export, uh, external demand, exposed economy such as the Eurozones, the global environment next year is just you know, not, let's just say, um, hot enough for comfort yet. Eurozone policymakers and um, also the government officials uh, looking at fiscal, I think they still have a lot of work to do.
1: Not hot enough for comfort, certainly for Mm. President Mm. Trump, uh, just putting Mm. out a tweet about this meeting that we've been reporting that he had with Fed Mm. Chair Jay Powell, just finished a very good and cordial meeting at the White House with Jay Powell of the Mm. Federal Reserve. Everything was discussed, including interest rates, negative interest, low inflation, easing dollar strength and its effect on manufacturing, Mm. trade with China, EU and others, etc., Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Um, Well, it's interesting. um, uh, So I haven't seen the tweet myself, but it's interesting that uh, negative interest rates have popped into the conversation. So um, clearly, um, the president will have a view on this, um, uh, uh, looking at how it's being implemented around the world. Um, But the Fed might still want to push back against it.
1: The the idea being, you said, just not hot enough. That seems to be the theme Mm. from central banks. How much can Mm -hmm. an ultra accommodative and sort of a a re-upping of another easing cycle, how much can that boost markets from here?
2: Uh, well, um, I think the I, w- I wouldn't say that there's a consensus on this right now, um, but there's a strong body of opinion. If you even look at the divergence in the ECB, the view is um, you need demand from the fiscal side. So Draghi's you know parting um, um, uh, 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 shot, um, if you want to call it that, was actually to the establishment. So monetary policy can achieve its objectives, you know, can get closer to inflation, you know, to maybe full employment in the US context once fiscal starts to do its job. Right. So monetary policy creates the conditions for, I would say, structural reform and fiscal policy to actually jumpstart demand. So I think, you know, that's where it's, you know, it'll be interesting. I don't believe um, uh, Chairman Powell will want to, you know, tweak in as many words, um, but would stress stressing you know, there may be some changes on the government spending side that could be very, very helpful towards the Fed achieving its objectives as well. So I think, you know, it needs to have some give and take here, but of course, we're only hearing what can monetary policy give, whereas central bankers would say, well, what can the politicians provide as well? That part of the equation is always missing somewhat.
1: Thank you so much for being with us and for commenting on the tweet that I sprung upon you, that we were all sprung upon uh, by President Trump. Jeff Yu, UBS Wealth Management, head of UK Investment Office, uh, joining us from London. Steve Dudash is joining us for his season of prediction, IHT Wealth Chief Executive Officer. Uh, Steve, I'm watching the capitulation of Morgan Stanley and other bears saying, you know, next year might not be so bad in markets. Do you agree? Do you think something substantial has shifted to make you uh, more optimistic about what we should see tomorrow uh, next year?
3: I think the only difference maybe say from nine months ago is how many interest rate hikes or um, cuts that we've actually seen because no one was predicting that a year ago but aside from that we've got a healthy economy that changed a whole lot fundamentally the big unknown has been the trade war but i think just about everyone is predicting that that and has been predicting that that would work out eventually you've got the two biggest economies they they have to work out terms at some point it's not going to happen overnight but i don't think anything has fundamentally changed to say, oh my, oh my, I think next year is going to be wonderful. I think we should start expecting a little bit more stability and a little bit more leveling out of uh, market returns. Uh, We're not going to see another tax cut, and we're not going to see three more rate cuts next year. So I don't see anything fundamentally that's massively different for next year.
0: What I find interesting is we've actually seen maybe over the last four or five weeks, people rotating out of defensive sectors and maybe taking on a little bit more risk with some cyclicals. And I find that interesting. And given how late we are uh, in the economic cycle, what do you how do you view that?
3: The only thing that I would argue on that is how late we are in the economic cycle, because we've had a lot of False stimulus that's pushed us through this. So it's not like we've had a 10 year run of just normal, stable growth or anything like that. We've had lots of break cuts. We've had a lot of tax changes over the years. We've had a lot of Fed helping out the situation a lot. So this isn't your run of the mill, you know, three to five year cycle that it goes up and down. Our economy right now, the world economy right now, is in a good place. And so sustaining that for a number of years in the future, barring massive events, isn't, out of, it isn't unreasonable to believe that. I, I th- again, I think it's unreasonable to believe we're going to see a twenty percent return again next year. I think that's just silly to even predict something like that. But right. but we're in a, a nice place here. So getting out of the defensive side and going more on the aggressive is something that we've actually been preaching for about a year now.
1: So what's your highest conviction trade heading into twenty twenty?
3: Okay, I'm not going to a hundred percent tell you this is my highest conviction, but I think it's the most interesting trade, and that's the streaming wars that are going on. It's the biggest shakeup in the entertainment industry that maybe since cable TV, Um, it used to be Netflix and nobody. Now it's Netflix and virtually everyone. And so there's going to be massive winners and there's going to be some massive losers in there. And that's what we've been focusing a lot of our time, on. You've got companies like Netflix who, you know, frankly, when we're looking at companies, we look at them, do you make money today? Are you going to make more money tomorrow? Netflix was losing money today when they had no competition. Now everyone's in the game. There's only so many eyeballs. There's only so many hours people can stream It's hard to see how they're going to continue to be a winner in that sector, whereas you've got other companies like Disney, um, who have tons of content and have the ability to absorb losses. They're all going to lose money on streaming in the next five years. Anyone who says otherwise is lying to you. They're going to lose money, but it's going to be who can sustain those losses with other parts of their companies and then be the ultimate big winner at the end. That's where it's been fun, and that's where we've been focusing a lot on.
0: So, in you know, one of the big questions when we talk about these streaming wars is to get a sense of how this is all going to shake out over the next, you know, five plus years. Uh, how many operators will actually be in the market? How much can this market support? How many players do you think ultimately will be left uh, making money in this business?
3: <laughs> That's the key point. He just nailed it there making money. <laughs> Because you got companies like Amazon and Apple that can float their streaming forever, essentially, because they make so much money on other parts. How long are they willing to sustain those losses? I think this is where you see a normal new sector or new part of an industry develop. Everyone jumps in. You'll start seeing the shaking out, and then you'll start seeing consolidating, like we saw in network TV and things along those lines when cable came out. Um, so... Three, five, four players at most right now. What are we projected for next year? Nine players that are going to be in the game. Okay, uh, that's not sustainable.
1: So, are you a Netflix bear? Is that what this is? I'm
3: not. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I think Netflix is bad. I'm going to tell you that I have a real prob- problem getting into a company that loses money and doesn't show me a clear path on how they're going to make money in the future. Netflix to me, is a very dangerous play. They need to hit some massive home runs. Massive, massive. And I don't like to gamble. So in that situation, I think Netflix is a gamble right now. If they hit a bunch of home runs, if they get some massively popular content that everyone jumps on board with, they could sustain this. They can make it through. But but you're betting... You're betting on the home run, and that's a tough bet right now. It's a very tough bet.
0: Steve, how do you think Apple's going to play this business? Do you expect them to kind of, I think they've said they're going to invest $6 billion in programming, and that's a big number, but it's, quite frankly, one could argue it's not big enough. Do you think they need to go out and make a big acquisition uh, in the entertainment space?
3: I do. I I completely agree with what you said. It's a big number, but I, I don't know if that's necessarily big enough. I mean, how much money has Disney put into it, not just right now, but over the last 10 years, buying content? Apple doesn't really have any content. Well, I mean, they've got some, but they don't have enough content right now. What could be interesting, this is way speculation, because you were saying in the beginning, you're looking for the season of speculation. What happens when Netflix is losing money for a couple of years and Apple has a bunch of cash sitting on the sidelines and they need content?
1: Well, that's, this is what people are expecting that at some, or, or putting out there, uh, yeah. postulating Poss- that what yeah. happens <laughs> if Apple buys Netflix. Short of that, though, I'm wondering sure. if you, on the flip side, are a Disney bull.
3: <laughs> I am. I, I, I like companies that make money and that show me how they're going to make more money in the future. Right now, they have more content than just about anybody. They've got so many different paths to make money on that content uh, that even if... Right now, no one really talks about this enough, I don't think. Right now, everyone's okay with buying a whole bunch of different streaming products, you know, five, six, seven, whatever, different areas, and you're paying 30 bucks a month for this and 40 for that, whatever. Um, what happens when the economy isn't doing so well? What happens when unemployment isn't at record lows and people have to start cutting back a little bit? You know, your your rank and file people aren't going to have seven, eight streaming things anymore. They're going to have three, maybe two, and so that is where I want to be positioned for the companies that can sustain that. So, yes, to answer your question. Um, Disney's an attractive company because even if they lose money on streaming, they make so much more money on everything else that it doesn't really matter and they can ride out that storm because right now we're in Goldilocks situation. What happens when we're not in that Goldilocks situation anymore?
0: Hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us, giving us your thoughts on kind of what you're looking for out to 2020 uh, as we start thinking about rolling over the calendar here. Steve Dudash, IHT Wealth Management Chief Executive Officer, joining us on the phone. Once again, this year in 2019, technology stocks are leading the market. We have the NASDAQ up 28% this year. Let's talk tech. Let's And we do that. We do with Dan Ives from Wedbush, Wedbush Securities. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Technology, again, has been the big, big driver of this move up in equity markets this year. Let's start with Apple. You know, it's just a fantastic story up 65% year to date. It's just amazing. The big issue I have is... This company, as you, we've talked about before, is really making a big pivot from a phone-reliant company to a services company, but it that's a lot of risk in that story there, but it seems like the market's giving Apple more than the benefit of the doubt.
4: Yeah, and you're not alone, and I think when I look at Apple, it's the one-two punch. The rock of Gibraltar continues to be iPhone, and I think what you're seeing here, iPhone 11 tracking 15 to 20% ahead of expectations. It's all about the install base, and now it's about monetizing that through services. And that's part of the rereading that we're seeing with Apple, and that's why right now the bears continue to be in hibernation mode in terms of what's happening with stock.
1: Okay, so you see uh, more positivity ahead yet. When whenever we see a trade headline that's negative, the tech stocks are the ones that sell off first. What if we do not get a trade truce? What, how much does that affect your outlook?
4: Yeah, that's $15 per share in terms of right now. What I view as the overall overhang from trade on Apple, it's the poster child in terms of the U.S.-China trade war, but it's about a $15 overhang right now. So I think if we do not get any sort of deal, that's sort of how I view sort of a risk baked into the stock.
0: So Dan, let's go back to the old you know, tried and true phone business for Apple. Give us a sense of how big 5G could be to Apple. We hear so much now across so many different technology verticals about 5G and how it's going to be the next big thing in tech. What does it mean for the likes of Apple?
4: In my opinion, the best 5G play is Apple, because when you look at 5G and how their position going to 2020... Think about 900 million consumers right now in terms of the install base. We think about 400 million of those are going to upgrade over the next 12 to 18 months. The first part's going to be iPhone 11, but 5G, I believe, is really going to be a super cycle for for Apple. That's why I still view this as a
1: stock. I think it's going to have a three in front of
4: it going into next year.
1: Dan, can you walk through that a little bit more, how 5G will sort of supercharge Apple shares?
4: Yeah, a lot of it is really the applications and the infrastructure that's going to be 5G related. And for the average consumer, especially within the install base, to get access to that 5G, you're going to need to be on a 5G phone. We think next year, based on our checks throughout China and Taiwan, there's going to be four 5G phones. So for a consumer, they're going to upgrade on 5G to Apple. And that, what that's really doing... It's giving them a renaissance of growth. Yeah, That's the highway. The highway to 5G is a smartphone.
1: I'm struggling to understand 5G applications as being so incredibly different. I mean, basically, is a robot going to get beamed into my home and, and make me breakfast? I mean, I, or how, how different is this going to be from 4 and 3G?
4: It's, I, I think it's a paradigm changer in terms of 5G. And I think the best way to think about it is more smart cities Autonomous capabilities. I'm talking about a lot of technologies that today are more on the whiteboard. Over the next five, ten years, it's really going to be five G enabled, and that's why when you look at the leader in that, at Apple, obviously Samsung continues to be there as well as the Chinese consumers. But that's why five G is so important in terms of where Apple sits in the stock.
0: Well, Dan, one part of the services story for Apple that's less clear to me is their video strategy, their TV strategy. I know they have Apple TV Plus and there's some shows there, but to me, that's not it. I mean, that's not going to cause me to switch or to add to my Netflix and to my Disney Plus. What do you really think is the play for Apple in the video business?
4: Yeah, I think the first part of the play is distribution. They want to be the distribution platform for streaming. That's the first step. And then I think if you look at it right now, that's why the bundling is so important in terms of the new iPhone. In terms of on the video side, right now they lack content, but I do not believe they, that will be like that in a year from now. I think they're going to dedicate $6 billion per year, and I still think they acquire more of a content play an MGM, a Sony, a Lionsgate over the next year.
1: Who's the big loser from 5G? Who's not going to keep up?
4: Look, I think in terms of the big loser right now, in terms of 5G, this is really going to be an Apple versus Samsung. I think if you look so far, I think Samsung's fumbled it a bit in terms of where they were versus Apple. And I think it's not going to be a winner take all, but I think right now Samsung has been a bit disappointing on the 5G side. And when you look at 5G, I think right now it's gonna be a lot of winners. The question is, Verizon, AT&T, which benefits from 5G more? And I think that's why the next six to 12 months are really gonna determine strategically who's best position. But right now, I continue to think Apple is front of the race in terms of when it comes to 5G.
1: Dan Ives, thank you so much for being with us. Dan Ives, Director of Equity Re- Research at Wedbush Securities.